0: Hi, I'm Audrey Liu, a student at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo. Recently, I discovered the Resilience Advantage series, which gave me more insight and broadened my point of view as an aspiring architectural engineer. This series of 12 episodes was created by US Resiliency Council and Optimum Seismic and talks about what resilience means to our community and why it is so important. Evan Reese, the host of the series and the co-founder of USRC, walks us through the different aspects of resilience and interviews special guests from various fields, such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability to share their insight on the importance of resilient design. Immersing myself in the Resilience Advantage series sparked many questions and made me more curious about resilient design. Hi Evan, I really enjoyed the Resilience Advantage series and want to explore this realm of structural engineering more deeply. Is it possible if I can listen to the archive of interviews to get a deeper understanding about resiliency?
1: Hey Audrey, sure thing. Hey, just feel free to contact me if you have any questions.
0: Come along with me on my journey in learning more about the importance of resilient design and how it affects our community as a whole. Episode one shock absorber, the big one is coming. The big one is coming. It's got me hanging on the edge of my seat. How can we really prepare for the next big earthquake though? I had a lot of questions swimming in my head, so I thought I would check in with Evan before I jumped in. So the building codes will protect us, right, Evan?
1: Well, well, that's the big question, Audrey. And I wish the answer was simple, but it's not. It's a subject that came up uh, frequently on the resilience advantage. But I think that my interview with David Marr could be a good starting place for you. He's a great example of someone who is is going beyond code.
0: David Marr is an experienced structural engineer practicing in West Berkeley with his firm, Marr Structural Design. He was involved in an innovative and exciting project called Casa Adelante, an affordable housing building that was made to be resilient in the face of a large scale earthquake with almost 0% increase To the budget, I followed Evan's lead and went to the source. Here's David Marr.
2: So, 20 years ago, all the design objectives were around like safety. Like, can we make buildings that don't kill people? And then, behind the scenes, people are thinking about kind of safety and economy. And the the earthquake problem was so great that that's about all we could do. And so we were inventing, collectively inventing, systems that. were very stable under earthquakes. They, they would uh, yield and deform and dissipate energy, and they would, they would stay up. So they were tough, they're really tough. But the problem with that is when you get systems that are, that are tough and absorbing all that energy, they're also getting damaged. And they're, they're, all that damage sort of manifests in repair time, repair cost. So we kind of like solved the primary problem, which is don't kill anybody. But then now we have all these kind of secondary problems, which is like day after the earthquake, I can't get back in my building. Day after the earthquake, I don't have a place to live or I don't have a place to work. All of those issues are kind of, those are the ones that are left. One of the like, I just say trickiest things here is earthquakes don't really work on a sort of scale of our lifetime. They can skip generations. So like for like me, I've experienced little earthquakes. And so I have to look overseas at giant earthquakes like in Japan and giant earthquakes in New Zealand, and globally, kind of like put together all the the the, the story and kind of understand what what these risks are. Um, so if you think, you know, not only do we have a young profession, we have a young country, and then you compare us to like Japan, where they they have um, a much older culture, and so their earthquake understanding is is much deeper and it's ingrained in the culture so for them it's not if it's gonna happen or is this some mysterious thing it's like this is gonna happen uh, it may have skipped a couple generations it may gonna happen it's either gonna happen to me or my grandchildren but it's gonna happen it's happened before so they have a, a much sort of um, richer sense of time so that's that's the, the, the tricky thing about this
0: so Evan what I'm hearing is that after the big one hits If we are in a building like Casa Adelante, we should be good, for the most part. But David does bring up a good point. What happens after the quake?
1: Well, right. That's where we get into this concept of functional recovery. It has to be part of the whole resilience equation beyond just safety. And that's what engineers are looking into more and more now.
0: I can definitely see this. I recently went to Structural Forum, an annual event hosted by Cal Poly SEAC to connect structural engineering professionals and students. It was an eye-opening experience, as many of the company representatives were confused about the idea of resilience. I wondered, where are we in terms of resilience and the ability to predict behavior of buildings, especially in the event of a major earthquake? David Marr.
2: The way I've seen it is, like, we're a really young Profession, and so right now, like you can see, um, all the the sort of orthodox notions of what is good in a building have changed um, when we from when we were in school, and and all the sort of wisdom brought down on high that that's all been sort of reworked, and so the, you can see the practice is much more global. There's much more sort of communication between. Um, best practices in New Zealand, best practices in Japan. All the countries are sort of talking to each other. um, Just as collectively we're figuring out how earthquakes sort of mess with buildings and and what society needs in terms of how they perform. In terms of like technical changes, the biggest innovation and things going on is our ability to directly model performance in buildings. Like we can take real earthquakes, build virtual buildings, and shake them and see what happens predict like where they break how they break do they do they get stuck when they're knocked over do they come back um so once we can in a sense have insights into what's really happening then we can kind of like turn on our designer hat or it's become designers again and say do we like this is this good is it bad can we do better start doing all kinds of permutations and actually explore giving you know producing better buildings. So there's one half which is our ability to predict behavior. The other one is is all this FEMA P58 stuff that's actually modeling whole building systems and modeling damage and um, losses. So P58 is a a, a, I guess program developed by FEMA um, and what it does is it allows kind of engineers to build a whole building model. So you got structure, architectural components, contents, you can put the whole thing in there and you can couple the structural behavior, like run an earthquake through a structural model, get it to shake, get accelerations, get drifts, and then subject all the the stuff in the building, the architecture, the structure itself, contents, to all of those actions, and then kind of see what happened. Like did it break? Um, Does it need repair? What's the chance you're gonna kill somebody? Like all of that kind of like that story um, is available at this point so it's like this linkage between the structural world and then like the world that everybody cares about which is a building and so now we kind of know what's gonna, you know not only can we predict what's going to happen structurally we can predict the consequence um, in terms of what people really care about like can they get into their building after an earthquake uh, how long is it going to take to repair um, how much is it going to cost did anybody get hurt Every, you, know, you know really basic stuff is is now um sort of at our fingertips in terms of being able to describe and and have like a relevant conversation about behavior there's a big disconnect between what clients think they're getting and what we're delivering and part of it is the building code is really opaque i mean it's it's a it's fundamentally a code about safety and it's prescriptive meaning it's 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 really easy to use, in a sense it's a cookbook. Follow these steps, you get a safe building, you don't kill anybody. The problem is with that um, sort of convenience of the prescription is there's a sort of de-emphasis on behavior. So you kind of don't know what's going on and those conversations between an engineer and a client about behavior and the day after the earthquake, none of those are happening. So in, in a lot of ways, like s- some engineers know about it, all the researchers know about it, but most don't. And so the business as usual, um, until there's an earthquake, is we're we're not talking about this stuff.
0: But what does performance-based engineering mean in terms of resilience?
2: Performance-based engineering really means you understand buildings um, and and whole systems from the perspective of behavior, like. You have earthquakes, you have high hazards, they have certain intensities, they have a probability of occurring, you know, so, it's, so it has to live in this sort of probabilistic space. And you can then have a, you can talk about what's the probability of these events happening or what's the exposure around the lifetime of a building, and you can talk about the, the, the actual behavior, like um, is the building damaged, is it, is, it, is it permanently damaged, is it repairable? Um, did you lose access? So essentially, you can have um, a kind of a, a complete picture, although it's clouded with uncertainties um, around around behavior, and and you have enough information that like sort of businesses and stakeholders, um, institutions, they can all like do long-range planning. They can figure out um, how they make their buildings, where they make their investments, um, what their expectations are, you know, and and they can, you know, in a sense, know what's going on. I think of performance-based engineering, it's, in a sense, because you've removed this mysterious cloak around um, what structural engineering is, you can kind of take performance-based engineering and say, we're going to just talk about behavior. You know, we're just going to talk about damage and repair time and things that anybody can understand, like it's going to take three weeks to get it in your building after an earthquake, or it's going to take six months. So, like, you know, really basic terms. And so once you can describe building behavior and risk in terms of, like, basic, understandable um, phenomena, you know, damage, downtime, and, and, and safety, then owners now are just as empowered as engineers. Owners can get it. Owners can decide for themselves what they want, what they can afford, what they, what they choose to pay for, how they allocate resources.
0: Making a building more resilient seems like it will cost the client a lot more money since it is essentially upgrading the building to perform better, right, Evan?
1: You know, Audrey, that's really the persistent misconception that resilience costs a lot. It's actually very little compared to the benefits that follow. David actually has some surprising numbers on that, and I'm really glad you're digging into this. It's important information to share.
2: The project I'm most excited about is an a, a, um, affordable housing project in San Francisco. It's called Casa Adelante. Um, it's a nine-story building, uh, it's 100% affordable housing designated for seniors, uh, 25% of the units are designated for formerly homeless. So if you think of the population, the folks in this building, they don't have a lot of resilience. They don't have, um, they don't have extra money, they, don't, they can't go to hotels after an earthquake. And so the, the dynamic here is that there's a both kind of need, opportunity to make a building that's more resilient, that allows folks to kind of stay in their homes um, while repairs are happening. So, so you know you can have um, a, a kind of real life recovery scenario by making a building, better building. So that's the context. And then um, because there are nonprofit developers doing this, um, they don't have extra money to make buildings um, more resilient. They can't. They can't like take all their money and make one great, great building. They have to. If they had extra money, they would just buy more, make more housing. So the 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 design dynamic was make better performance, make resilience, keep people in their homes, but don't spend any extra money. And so Shotwell, we kind of set that up as like we're gonna go for it. We're gonna make a building that goes through these big earthquakes and realigns itself after an earthquake, limits all the damage to architectural finishes, and keeps people in their houses. So that's the story. Um, we came really close. We, we spent about point, the number is like 0.24% extra. So we didn't hit the target, but it was really close. Um, uh, early on, we're working with the, the, the developers. Um, we did initial studies where we had the promise of cost neutral. Then got green lighted to, to try the performance based design. Um, and then worked really hard to keep to the cost neutral. And then, did it, at the end, did a um, sort of comprehensive cost estimate and came close. So, developers are happy that um, they, they think this is a worthwhile investment. So, the performance expectations are that the, the structure is going to be fine, the structural damage will be sort of um, limited and repairable. And won't won't impede people staying in the building and then the 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 architectural damage will be constrained um, to repairable damage again um, we want to be able to keep people in their homes uh, while repairs are going on so we're thinking of like drywall taping and mudding and, and things like that so it's inconvenience but again we're, we're, we're dealing with avoiding homelessness and displacement and so the the repairs are again, constrained um, and and limited.
0: This sounds to me like a meal upgrade and the minimal cost difference between a medium-sized meal and a large-sized meal. It makes the consumer contemplate getting their money's worth and whether the extra amount of food is worth the nominal extra cost. But I wanted to know the details. I wanted to know how were they able to achieve resiliency with minimal costs.
2: So in one direction, the slabs are doing all the work both in terms of, like, yielding energy absorption, uh, interacting with the foundation to get the recentering, And then in another direction, the transverse direction, um, two of the walls are just in bad spots. Couldn't do anything about them. That's just how the site was and how the layouts were. And in those uh, two walls, we had to actually add supplemental damping, uh, supplemental energy absorption. And what we did is we collaborated with a professor from New Zealand, Jeff Rogers, Um, He fabricated and and developed this lead extrusion damper for us and we embedded the damper kind of in the foundation. So when the walls um, take the big earthquake hit, the foundation rocks, the damper gets activated, energy comes out, and then the weight of the building helps recenter it. I mean, same like technologies that you have in cars, and since you have springs, shock absorbers, and then a bumpy road you've gotten an earthquake. You know, you got, you got an earthquake, which is the bumpy road, and then building has stiffness, and building has energy absorption. And you just kind of like play with the, the springy parts and the damping parts and run the earthquake through it and keep tuning it till you can get the behavior you want.
0: I truly love this aspect of our field. We get to give back to the community, especially the more vulnerable populations. It seems like this goal is shared by a lot of experts in the field. They care about how resilience is a community effort.
2: I think of the city as a kind of big community organism, and um, they've got you know, the expectation, and, and this is what we've seen after other earthquakes around the globe, is that resources are stretched really, really thin. Um, there's there's dam, you know, it's a mess. There's damage all over the place, um, and so keeping people in their homes and giving them um, keeping them safe while they can arrange repairs is is key to, to sort of having a city and a community recover and bounce back. One of the most devastating things about earthquakes is they're not sort of building by building events they're community events. so think of Hurricane Katrina think of of, of disasters happening at at sort of a regional scale and so when you when you have classrooms go down, then you not only have kids that, that can't go to school, you can have parents that have to stay home. Um, it starts disrupting um, people's work. Um, the whole you know the whole system is a mess. Probably learning outcomes would dip you know because of those sort of stressors to the system.
0: In the case of a school building, what would the consequences be of it being impacted by a natural disaster? Are the building codes for school buildings stronger than those for regular buildings? David talked about that as well.
2: What What's at risk is the the sort of the the burden on the community when you get schools being damaged and you get all these kids that can't go to school, and that means parents are staying home, um, people aren't going back to their jobs, um, so it's just it's just a mess, and and so. Um, Again, I think the, the Division of State Architect, the folks who are mandating or controlling the design of public schools are, do, are doing a great job from a safety standpoint. But with the technologies available, both design technologies and, and technologies to diagnose and assess, um, we, we can do better. I mean, just as a design community, there's no reason for us not to do better. Conventional school buildings are um, they're designed well. They're, they're very safe. They're made about 50% stronger than regular buildings. They're stiffer, um, so they're less prone to damage, but they can be damaged. I mean, they, they tend to be um, conventional in, in their solutions. Um, so so it's, a, it's a good kind of muscular approach to safety, and you get this fringe benefit of, of getting um, a little, bit, uh, little better performance in terms of damage resistance. But it's um, it's indirect in the in in the benefit.
0: I'm curious: Are IMOD building structures less prone to damage after a disaster?
2: Well, essentially, they are they're, they're nearly damage resistant. We've taken them and modeled them, and in the the sort of most severe. Um, seismic environment in California and show that we got great performance. We get platinum performance in about 95% of all the cities in California. And then for the remaining 5%, we get gold performance. So it's really exceptional.
0: Wow, I'm shocked. But the progress that we have made in the realm of resilience really starts to put my mind at ease. Well, maybe not ease, but I'm excited about our future with resilient design and it gives me hope. For more resources and information about performance-based design, David Marr, and Casa Adelante, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC and Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking on everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into Evan's interview with Leslie Chapman Henderson, the president and CEO of Flash, the federal alliance for safe homes.